ready today. All right, good morning. Um, I want to welcome you. If you guys don't know me, my name is Chris, one of the pastors here at Kesed. Uh, I am honored to be sharing with you today um, on this Memorial Day weekend. Um, before we go any farther with the service here today, though, uh, I want to honor this weekend. And um, so I want to ask this. If you have ever served in any capacity our country in the military, in any branch of the military, um, I'm going to have you stand right now, all right? It's okay. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for your service. Amen. Thank you for your service. I think um, depending on your life story, your experiences, uh, a weekend like this, that comes every year carries with it a different weight for us. And I think it's really important that we stop and that we acknowledge that. As I was growing up in my family in Battleground, Washington in the 80s and 90s, um, we didn't have TVs in every single room and we didn't have phones that we could watch Netflix on. And so there was a TV out in the living room that my parents normally commandeered to watch the news in the evening. And my sister and I hung out in their room laying on their luxurious waterbed, by the way, if you remember those guys, right? And we watched uh, TV in there on one of those cool TVs that you clicked around. There was no actual remote, right? And I can still, as I'm, as I'm speaking today, I can see it. I'm sitting here and I'm watching the TV here, but up on the wall all right, is a framed image. And there's a name on that. His name is Prentice B. Boykin Jr. I still remember it. Right? Prentice B. Boykin Jr. was my dad's best friend growing up. Right? My dad's best friend growing up, and sadly, at much too young of an age, um, he was killed uh, in action. And Growing up, though, sitting on that bed and doing my normal kid, I didn't really realize what that meant up there. But that was my dad's way and my, my parents' way of honoring the experience that my dad had with this important person in his life and honoring the sacrifice that he had given all right, for on all of our behalfs. And as I sit here today at 35 years old, I'm thankful that my parents created that memorial in our house, not just tucked away somewhere in a drawer or in a book somewhere, but something up there to see. Because when I was growing up, I didn't have the capacity, I don't think, to understand it fully. But now, I think I'm a little better at that. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful that my, my parents created that memorial so that now I, I can go, I appreciate the fact that we stopped and we recognized and we honored right, the fact that someone gave their lives for the freedoms that I experienced today. Before we go on with our service, I want to issue a little bit of a challenge. We're going to start here, all right? I'm a guy who gets to hang out with a lot of kids, a lot of teenagers um, who don't fully probably have the capacity to understand what this weekend means. And I want to share with you, tell them anyway, all right? 
tell them anyway, share with them the experience. We are helping form and guide what matters in this life. And so as you celebrate this weekend, uh, barbecues or anything else, you're around grandkids, you're around kids, you're around nieces and nephews, and whatever gracious, caring, and kind way that you can, all right, um, let's celebrate this by saying this is what matters, all right? There are a lot of people that have given their lives, and there are a lot of people affected through that sacrifice here. And so this is my little soapbox of way. Uh, you don't need permission from me, but I want to advance you forward to sh- share. Let's, let's help continue to teach uh, the generations behind us what matters in this life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. So this morning, when we look at the, um, the course of our year, right? At some point, actually in 1971, the federal government decided that Memorial Day was something that was going to go into our yearly liturgy as Americans, that we were going to stop everything and we were going to look at this specific thing and remember and recognize it. We talk about this word liturgy, and maybe this is something familiar to you, or maybe it's just a churchy word that you don't really understand, and that's all right. We're going to get on the same um, train together here this morning. The word liturgy means a set of practices that we together participate in that form us into the likeness of Jesus. Depending on your church background, what you grew up in, that liturgy can be, look completely different on a Sunday morning. How worship goes, how the speaking goes, your interaction, what the sacraments are, any of uh, spiritual disciplines. But the idea of a Sunday morning here, here at Kessid, we put this 90 minutes together form it together to where we walk through it, we experience it, and the goal is each and every week we form more and closer to the, the likeness of Christ. That's why we do what we do, right? And so the goal is that. This morning we're going to take a little bit of time. I want to look at the practices that we participate in, right? I want to look past just the act of the practices and take an honest look, and not just ours here on Sunday, but also the liturgy of our lives. So if the goal here on Sunday is to take 90 minutes and say, I'm dedicating this time, all of myself, right, to teaching, to worship that helps form me into Christ, we want to then say, not just Sunday morning, are the rest of the practices of my, of my life, is the liturgy of my life forming me into that as well? Right? And, and Sunday morning is kind of a finite, really at times intense an intimate look into that. And I think Jesus and the Holy Spirit have designed it in such a way that this is a safe place to do, to do that. So that's what we're going to do this morning. All right. One of us are excited. All right. <laughs> if you were here last week, we had an incredible message um, brought, brought by Byron. And he shared this um, simple but meaningful idea that your story matters. Not just like one part of your story, but all of your story matters. And this week we want to continue that thought and look at whether our lives and practices echo that truth. Amen. Amen. When we look at the, um, the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament, we see him continually challenging religious practice that had gone stale where their original meaning had, gone, had long been forgotten or ignored and now had become simply public ritual. Public rituals that were often used as a measuring stick to decide who was more in or out of the family of God. Jesus continually challenged, especially the religious leaders, and instead of just saying, are you doing this? Are you performing this ritual? He's asking, why? 
Do you understand the meaning behind it? Where we as human beings do the ritual, and then what we do is we like to compare ourselves to others and think that we're closer to God or more in the family of God. But Jesus has this other way of interacting with us. Today we're going to look at one such story in Matthew chapter 9. In the midst of Jesus' teaching, his healing, and calling disciples, he is approached by the disciples of John the Baptist on the subject of fasting. Now, we're not going to get all the way into what fasting is because that's actually not the point of the story. But before we dive into the story, a little bit of background. In this historical time, religious leaders right, uh, carried with them disciples. Right? Depending on who you were, you brought with you 10, 12, and even more people that were learning your way of interacting with God, interacting with the scriptures. And everyone was a little different, a little bit like all of our churches are a little different. Right? And so each one of them learned a way, a liturgy that says this is what you do and this is what you don't do. Okay? And the idea is that you learn that and you take that into life. Well, we're picking up the story where we find a disciple of John the Baptist looking at how Jesus and his disciples are living out their faith and seeing that it's different from his, and he's going to question that. And then he's going <laughs> to walk himself into challenging Jesus, all right? And we're going to see how that works out for him together, all right? We're going to pick up our story in Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. It says this. Then the disciples of John came to him, came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Okay? Challenging. First thing, if you've read the New Testament at all, you see that normally if you find yourself on the team with the Pharisees, it's not the best place to be. Okay? With the other religious leaders. Okay? But this person identifies with the Pharisees. And let me translate this. He says this. Why aren't you guys following the rules? We have to. Okay? We're supposed to fast. Why aren't you guys following the rules? I have to follow the rules, and we're doing it, and the Pharisees are doing it. Why aren't you? Now, I like to imagine the story. Okay? Whenever the scriptures are read, we have to remember this is a real story that really happened. And I, I just imagine Jesus standing with a little twinkle in his eye right, and a little smirk on the side of his mouth and saying, I don't think you know what you just asked. Right? And so he answers. And he answers in a very unique way that I I bet for you, unless you've done deep study on this, that's going to seem a little off, just like it did to the disciple of John the Baptist. This is how Jesus answers. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Now, I want you to zoom back into the story. And our, our disciple of John the Baptist, we don't know this person's name, but I want you to imagine you just asked Jesus a really simple question. Why don't you have to fast? And then you get this answer. You're like, do you need me to ask again, Jesus? I don't know what you're saying. So here's, if we back up in the story, we have to realize that Jesus doesn't just give an answer, but he offers a new way to look at the question. I love to be able to answer, uh, ask questions to Jesus and get simple answers. It's not normally how he works with any of us. 
He's in the business of transforming not just us from the inside out, but the way that we see and interact with the world. And so he takes opportunities like this to do so. Now to dive into the actual what's going on here, why Jesus says what he says. Fasting was associated in this time with mourning. Okay, And so Jesus is saying, why do you want us to mourn while, while we are at a wedding celebration? I, this is not the right time for that. I know this is one of the, the rituals that is supposed to happen, but this is not the time for that. All right? and he's, he's challenging the way that this person is, is executing the rituals. So this isn't the time. Part of this is wisdom to know when to do that. He then gives two different visuals to explain and the second of which is where we will focus this morning. He says, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. When wine is new, it is in a state of fermentation. It bubbles and it expands, and as the fermentation gases are released... A fresh and pliable wineskin can absorb such an expansion and slowly age with the wine until the fermentation process is complete. To put fresh wine into old wineskins is a recipe for disaster. The old wineskin has assumed a definite shape and no longer is pliable. The activity of the new wine will stretch it beyond its capacity to hold. So Jesus isn't just answering a question about fasting. He's looking at the person who's asking the question, and he's saying, I'm not sure if you can open yourselves up to this. You're kind of an old wineskin, right? You have a way in which you're looking at life, and you're pretty sure, and I don't know if you have an ability to expand to understand it, all right? This morning, I want to talk about that, that idea of being open, all right? It's a word we're going to use a lot today, being open to expanding and growing and looking at the rhythm in which Jesus brings us to, to continually bring us to this opening and expanding. Jesus brings us a question about ourselves. The disciple of John brings us a question about external thing, and Jesus says, yeah, but let's talk about you. This is often an uncomfortable space to be, but I think it's something that we need to get comfortable with. As Christians, as Christ followers, this is the rhythm through which we follow. This is a parable about the disciple of John. See, Jesus' first teaching in Matthew 4 starts with, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And this word repent, when rightfully understood, simply means to change your mind or outlook. He's saying, I need you to change how you see. Not just what you do, and by the way, focusing on what you do is an important thing, but when all the focus goes towards just performing the things I ask you to do and not towards the reason why and the way in which you look at the world, you're missing it. And that's Jesus' challenge for our disciple of John today. Jesus is saying you can't put new ideas into old mindsets. You can't get new results from old behaviors. You will have to change the way that you see Jesus in his life was teaching, and he was not just showing us the way to heaven, but just as importantly, how to live right here. He was showing us a pattern, a rhythm of transformation that we see in his life and all throughout the scriptures that our liturgies and our spiritual practices that we do together 
both corporately and individually, are meant to reinforce. And today we're going to take a look at that. As Jesus gave us images as an invitation to look at something differently, allow me to humbly attempt to do the same this morning, right? I want you to imagine with me three boxes, okay? And this is zooming out and looking at our lives and our experience and our worldview of reality as we see it, okay? The three boxes are one, order, two, disorder, and three, reorder. The first box, order. This is what life is supposed to be like. Now, everyone here is an individual, and you grew up in a particular family with particular influences, You grew up with a certain sense of right and wrong, with a certain sense of this is what uh, men or fathers are supposed to do. This is what women or mothers are supposed to do. This is who God is. This is who God isn't. You were given an actual box to live in. You were told this is where the fences are. This is right. This is wrong. This is good. This is bad. Everything in between. And this is a good thing. We need this in life. We absolutely, I have an eight-year-old that very much is figuring out where his box, where the lines are, where the fences are in life. And this is a good thing for us to, um, to learn, to grow in. We have to have structure in our worlds, right? This is the first box. This is order. This is everything that you know or were taught or maybe as a, as a expression of rebelling against what you were taught. This is the first order that you were given, Right? The second box is disorder. Now, allow me to explain. Um, Yesterday was my wife's birthday, okay? My wife uh, has a love and an affinity for the outdoors, okay? She has a love for it. I have a like for the outdoors, and our relationship is growing. I'm excited to share that with you, okay? I don't have quite as much of a a love, but I have a like, right? And she has a love. And so, but it was her birthday, and so we have to do what she wants to do. So on her birthday, I booked us a uh, whitewater rafting trip, okay? Anyone here been whitewater rafting before? Yes, brave souls, all right? Brave souls, okay? I strategically picked it myself without her help, because I wanted to pick the easiest one possible, okay? (laughs) Just being honest here. I wanted to pick the easiest one possible, all right? And so I booked it, and we went down to Maupin, Oregon on the Deschutes River, okay? And yesterday, and we river rafted, okay? So here's the thing. We get there, and we're getting in our boat, and we meet our uh, boat captain, and his name is Al. And I'm really excited that we get Al, because I saw some of the other captains, and I didn't want them captaining my boat, all right? We got Al, and Al's job, Al's job is to set order in the boat. Because here's the thing. He asked the question at the very beginning. He said, who here has been river rafting before? And only two people raised their hand. And even Al was like, oh, I don't think that's normal. Most of you don't subject yourself to this. You come back for this experience, right? And so there was only two of us in the boat, me not being one of them, my wife being one of them, one other person that knew what to do in the boat. They had an order. This is, you do this, you don't do this. So it was very clear to Al, he's going to have to set some order. We're going to have to spend some time figuring out where the fence is. What do you do? What do you not do? So we started out on some, the really e- easy patch of the river, and he's telling us, go forward three times, and we're doing it. And <laughs> it was so hilarious. We are not good when this starts. So when we say forward three times, you just expect the boat to go forward. But no, we go in a circle, right? <laughs> All right? Because people over here are really strong. People over here. There's one lady in front that's doing this, right? 
I'm not, I don't know how that works in her brain, but that's not working for us. And so Alice's job is to set order in the boat. And so he switches he, two people in the back and he's like, okay, and we get to a point where we can go forward, right? Okay, we're getting this down. <clears throat> this is uh, a really fun experience. Again, I strategically picked this one for its easiness, all right? I do not enjoy swimming a lot. I was not built for that. Um, I just wasn't. And so I didn't want to have to go into the water. I want to stay in the raft. I want to go river rafting and not swimming, right? And as we're going, they don't tell you a lot of this as you're like uh, shuttling down there. But as we're going, they tell you, they say, hey, there's, there's about two of these that are pretty hard. And we're asking, people keep asking questions like, do people uh, fall out of the boat? And he, Al just keeps saying, sometimes, you know, and to me, I'm like, I'm not, that's not how I operate, all right? I need more clarity. I need some order. How often? 40%, 30%, 20%? (laughs) And he tells us, okay, there's a big one coming up, right? We're about like an hour and a half into this, and it's been a great experience. Uh, People have fallen out of other boats thus far. An entire boat flipped, and at this point, I'm like, this was not in the brochure or the website, all right? <laughs> and so he tells us about a particular hit that they call it going down at a really big rapid um, called Oak Springs. And he says, we're going to practice because Oak Springs is different from all the others. Okay, here's what's going to happen. We have to get just right going down this rapid or we're all going to tip. And, I'm, and again, only two of us know what to do. Awesome. This is a great start. And he said, so we're going to practice a little bit. So we practice. All right. And he said, and the second thing, this is new. The second thing, when I say get down, you jump to the bottom of the boat and grab onto whatever you can. And I'm like, how is this the plan? How this is the plan right now? How is this the plan? Okay. And so we come up and, and we're the third boat to go through and we see boats go. And then just, they're not there anymore. I don't know where they went. They're alive. They're not, I don't know. And so we're going up and he's like, forward, forward. And so we're going, we're going. And we get (laughs) to the drop and he says, get down, right? And we all jump to the middle of the boat. We grab whatever we can. And there's a drop, there's a drop, there's a drop that feels like an absolute eternity. And we go completely underwater, right? I think I have a picture of this. Do you see a raft? This is no longer whitewater rafting, okay? That's us, okay? (laughs) Right? All of a sudden, all right, if you can start to see, the boat is starting to tip, okay? I have one more picture I want to show you of what happens next. The boat's not supposed to be sideways, okay? (laughs) The boat is not supposed to be sideways. And if you notice, this is our tour guide falling out of the boat. (laughs) All of a sudden, we get to just a 90 degree angle on our side and my brain literally says, we're done, right? And somehow we stay there, which it felt like forever. And somehow the boat goes down and there's this moment, it's like (gasps) celebration. And you look and Al's not in the boat. And Al's the one that brings us order. He's the one that tells us what to do. And there's this, honestly, I'm not even kidding. This is like, in reality, I had a moment of like, we're, what, 
I don't know what, it was desperation, it was fear, it was all those things kind of shooken together in this moment. And that was only a few seconds, right? And I look back and I see one sandal sticking out of the water behind us, his body and head underneath the water. And then all of a sudden, Al, because he does this quite a bit, he comes back to the surface, he comes up and somehow like a superhero just jumps out of the water, back into the boat. And he's like, we're good, right? <laughs> we're good. But that moment where we went from, so it's one thing to know what to do, right? When you're in a situation, I know exactly what to do right now. I've experienced for this or whatever it is that, that gave me the tools necessary. I know what to do right here, right? It's another thing to not know what to do and have someone with you that at least knows what to do, that you can submit to, that can be an authority. It's a whole nother thing to be in a dangerous situation, not know what to do, and not have anyone that knows what to do. When we look at this idea of order and disorder, many of us in this room have experienced a time when we were, we were given the tools for life. We were given right and wrong. We were given the ways in which to relate to other people. We were given a picture of God, a picture of community, a picture of faith, a picture of ourselves, and then a certain experience or a suffering or a trauma or a dry period brings us to a place where we realize that the fences that we were given don't work anymore, and that plunges us into disorder. This can be from... This can be just relational. This can be our picture of God. This can be a, a life, a physical situation. What was, I was, I was secure with and I knew, and now I'm in this new place. And you know what most of our culture has taught us to do when we get into a box of disorder? To get out. That's what we like to do. Whenever we get to that second place, this place of disorder, we want to get out. One of the broken things that we do in our culture, we're in a box of disorder and we see any sort of questioning of the way that it's supposed to be. And this is, this is if I'm honest, this is really fundamental Christians. Right? Instead of acknowledging this season of disorder when things seem to be out of place, right, all we do is reinforce the boxes that we were given. We? And we lock more and more people out of that space. Our job when we go into a place of disorder is to acknowledge that space. And it's not to get rid of all the fences we were given, by the way. Some of them are really good. If I can say something to my generation, the generation below me, okay? We have, given, we have been given a freedom to ask questions and critique our culture that oftentimes starts in a place, though, with no order whatsoever. I recently read of a jail um, prison chaplain that did work for 14 straight years, and he said the very thing that he saw more and more um, than anything else is that people started in box two, that they were never, be it fatherlessness, be it brokenness, be it addiction, I was never given a true sense of order in my life, and so I was just, all I was doing was looking around and rebelling against any order that I could find. A lot of the younger generation that we have right now is in box two right now as they're looking at the institutions and the structures and the authorities they have, and they're seeing adequate flaws in it, but they're not going through the same journey that Jesus is teaching us to go through, which is through box two. Our time in box two is important, and it's supposed to bring us to box three, which is reorder, which is to look around, 
to see what was good in my upbringing, what was good in my right and my wrong and my worldview, and to even deeper put those stakes in the ground. And then with the help of Jesus, with the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to find the new places that our fences are supposed to be. This is the rhythm. Now, um, depending on your bouts with disorder or even your space in it right now, that's not always an easy thing to do. A time for disorder, what I'm learning, requires its own liturgy, its own rules, its own time. And so what I want to present to us this morning is um, a way, not the way, not the only way through, but a way that we can acknowledge a space of disorder. Because here's the thing about order, disorder, and reorder. You don't have to be, all of your life doesn't have to be in one of these places. Sometimes it is. Sometimes there's something really hard. Sometimes we lose a loved one that was a really important person in the raft with us, and now we don't know where to be and where to go, right? Sometimes this, this suffering, sometimes this is a health issue that changes everything. That changes everything, and I'm not sure how to make sense of all this now. And to make sense of that, to not just stay in the place of disorder, we normally have to find a place that we can grab onto something bigger and stronger and more rooted than us to find that order. So let me present one such way um, this morning. There is a gentleman that's doing some really great work. His name is Mike Foster, and he has created a curriculum um, called Rescue Academy. And the specific design of this curriculum is to empower and equip uh, those inside of the church to walk alongside others that are going through suffering and pain from the smallest to the largest, because we all have some level in our lives. And so w what I have found is that I, I honestly think every single person in this room right now is willing all right? and desires to help. And so if you had a loved one that was hurting next to you, you desired to help. But the problem is we don't always have the right tools to help. And so his hope in his heart is to equip us with the right tools. And he has presented this one such idea called the nest. And what I want to do is, is um, walk through this with us a little bit this morning with the specific idea that if you find yourself in a space of disorder, and we all do. The goal is to create a nest in which to walk through it. Most of the time, we, we either ignore the spaces of disorder in our life, or we try to walk through them as if they're something easy. And that's not the case. This is the nest. The first thing I want to point out um, in terms of building the nest, there are some common characteristics to building the nest. The first thing is quieting. How much noise is in your world, right? Right? How much noise is in your world? And how much time does it take to quiet that noise? We strategically create a liturgy here on Sundays that allows you to leave the noise of the, the radio in your car and, and everything, all the noise and all the text messages and everything in between and coming in and maybe you have kids and you're checking them in and then you're sitting down and your life and every, you're saying hello and we create a space of worship that allows us to quiet. Now it's 
kind of weird that we can do that with sound and beautiful music and vocals, but that's the, that's the sense. We're creating a space that quiets us from noise and allows us to focus in on what really matters. We need a space of quiet. When we do our EHS course, one of the craziest things that we have people do. This is normally the hardest thing, by the way. There's a course book, there is study, there is group discussion, and the hardest thing for people to do is we have them start just pausing in silence for two minutes a day. <gasps> Try it. It's really hard, right? Because we don't do silence in our culture. We, we don't know how to do this. And so the first thing that we have to acknowledge is I have so much noise in my life. A place of disorder requires more attention, so I have to start to quiet myself, right? The second is active listening. There is a big difference, and this is one of the problems um, we see in the culture in the younger generation today, and one that requires, by the way, any of us older folks to have a lot of grace. Because personally, I uh, was 18 years old and just out of high school the first time I got a phone, right? The first time that I got a phone, you know how many text messages came with it? Ten. All right, that's how old I am, okay? I laughed at the idea of sending words to someone else when I could actually call them on the phone. And so I never grew up in a generation, and this has been a disconnect, this is something I've had to work very hard on as a youth pastor to understand and relate to our students that are in such a place of, I have access to all the information in the world at my fingertips right now. And so I can either look at that or you, right? And this is hard to do, but... Every single one of us in this room knows the difference between someone who's giving us full attention and active listening. You do this not just with your eyes, but you do this with your ears. You do this with your entire body. You do this by turning your phone over or turning it off. And in this place, as we're walk walking through hard things, we need a space, whether it be a person or a group, that says, you matter right now. More than the other. I have access to all the other information in the world, but you and your story, you matter right now. We build that space. The next is radical non-judgment. Now, this one's hard to do. A lot of times we have advice for our friends. A lot of times we have um, very quick judgments that we make. Uh, when, when we look at the idea of, of judgment, I want you to think about when you feel truly safe. Right? Who is a safe person for you? And I think if you have that person in your life or those people in your life, there is an element of I can show my entire self to them. There's nothing in me that is hidden from here. Now, it's a scary thing because this isn't the setting for everything, especially when we talk about um, counseling. A lot of people, and I was one of them, um, uh, wasn't a big fan of counseling because it's a really scary thing to go sit with someone you don't know and then start sharing your soul to them. And you're like... I. I don't even trust you. Why would I share? I don't share this with the rest of the people that I do trust in my life. Why would I share it with you? And one of the greatest things that a counselor or someone or a friend or a spouse can do to create, help create this space is to just sit and listen and be, um, be a reflection of Christ in non-judgment and to say all of you is welcome here. Every bit of you is welcome. It doesn't mean every bit of you gets to say as it is, as we're already talking about. The idea of walking into these rituals and these practices is transformation. But in this space right now, we welcome reality, whatever it is, whatever your thoughts are, whatever your desires are. I've shared my story a few times here, but uh, four plus years ago, I went through divorce. 
and it brought me into the deepest place of disorder I've ever experienced in my entire life. And I didn't know which way was up, which way was right, which way was left. Um, and I end up finding a place through counseling on Thursdays at 2. Where, when I looked around in my life, I had some pretty intense emotions that would pop up from time to time, to put it mildly. And I wasn't sure what to do with that, and I was afraid to just bring them up in real life. But I, I ended up having this space and this person I could go bring this to. And this beautiful thing happened. I could say whatever I wanted in there. And these eyes looked back with, at me with love and acceptance. And that did something to me. Right? Every time, even when I said things that I knew wasn't true or wasn't right, right, it was the look back of acceptance that allowed, I didn't even need the words anymore. Right? The acceptance was a mirror in front of me that allowed me to say, oh man, I don't believe that. That's my flesh talking. That's my brokenness speaking. But we need a space of radical non-judgment as we go through disorder. Presentness. When we talk about the idea of presentness, it isn't just me quieting myself, but the, the actual space that I'm in is aligned for me to focus. The doors are closed, right? Other noise is minimized. This is... Um, Depending on what you're walking through, you need more of a group structure, more of a one-on-one -on -one structure. Right? And there are ways in which we can give ourselves, give ourselves open to be not only truly present ourselves, right? because you can go and you can go to a counselor, you can go to a shepherd, and you cannot bring your full self. You can bring the minimal part of yourself. And the idea is that you are being present and fully open to what God is doing in your life, and not only that, but the space is created for that as well. Now, our last um, portion of the nest is warmth, and the way that I share this is this. My Thursdays at two, I went and sat in this couch, and I, and I was building a trust relationship with my counselor, <laughs> but I sat on the couch, and on the couch, there was a pillow right next to me, and there was a pillow right next to me, and I would grab this pillow, and I would put it on my lap, right? For whatever reason, this said warmth to me. I don't know what it is. I've always been, I like blankets, and I like pillows, and, uh, and I put this on my lap, and there were beads on the outside. I can still feel them right now, right? <laughs> I've thought about sometimes just going back to that counselor and be like, hey, I really appreciate you. Can I have your pillow? Uh, <laughs> I, need it for my, I need it for my disorder, right? Um, but that little thing right there signified warmth to me, that this Man, what you're bringing in here is safe. This is hospitality. This is creating this space. The reason I share this is depending on the level of disorder that you are experiencing in your life, both inflicted and self-inflicted, depends on the type of space that we need to find. Some of us need to find a group that is strategically placed around just one idea here. Some of us need to double down on some relationships that we have, that we have a lot of good relationships in our life, but man, I only have a few truth-tellers in my world. And I might need to ramp up the truth that happens for me. And so I'm going to create that space. But the question is, and this is, this is one of the hard questions, is do you have a space like this? Do you have a dedicated space, a liturgy built into your world that says, I trust Jesus, that the rhythm of my life is going to continually be, not just one time, by the way, but continually be order, disorder, and reorder, and knowing that, I'm going to build and reinforce a space in which I can take my disorder. 
deep suffering requires a very strategic and dedicated space. Other times require things like prayer, a spouse, a loving friend, a Bible study group, a coworker. But the idea is that I don't I don't ignore my, the disorder going on in my world. I actually, this is the crazy thing, guys. I embrace it because it's a part of this world. I embrace it because I trust and I know that it doesn't have power over me. And I trust and I know that God has made a way through it. And here's the beautiful thing. As you go through this journey, order, disorder, reorder, pe- the people of reorder in specific areas of their life, man, they have this beautiful way of inviting and encouraging others through the journey. You look at the times in the scriptures. Jesus at one point tells Peter, get away from me, Satan. Depart from me, Satan. Why does he do that? Jesus explains to his disciples that his life is going to end on the cross, that he's going to die. And Peter because he has his own order. No, the order is, Jesus, you're going to come as a conquering king, and that's my fence, and I'm going to, I'm going to reinforce as much as I can my, the walls of my box. That's when Jesus turns to Peter and says, depart from me, Satan. Now, why is that? He's saying, you're ignoring the fact that disorder is going to be a really good teacher for us. We're going to need to go into a time of disorder. My hope and my prayer for us as a community is that we would embrace times of disorder as much as we can and we would give them the attention and the honor that they deserve, but we would acknowledge that they do not have power over us. And as we do that, as we sit with other people going through similar stories and they encourage us through, we know that I'm continually on this journey. I will never stop going through this. You will never stop going through places that you feel very secure and then moving into a new place. When we lose a job, when we get older, right? When we retire, when physical things happen to our body, these are new places of disorder that happen that require our full attention. And this world is continually grabbing every ounce of our attention that it possibly can get. And your job is to build disciplines and liturgies into your world that say, I'm not just a slave to that. That I am a child of God. I am a called. I am a called person to be the light of this world. And one of the ways that I am a light of this world that I acknowledge at times that my light's not very bright. Some of us in this room right now, your light's not very bright. And you want to run from that. And I admit... I have been in that space too, and I still do that from time to time. Our job is to acknowledge that time. So the question is, what do we do? What do we do when we find ourselves in that space? We build this in. You're going to be presented with times, and, and I wish I could give you just one space. But the more that we can build these nests into our worlds to walk through it and reinforce it. Now, I'll also encourage you this way, guys. As you build this, it's going to be uncomfortable to begin with. Building trust often is. Uh, one, th- one such situation this week for me that I just experienced a, a bit of a smaller version of this. Uh, two Fridays ago, we are taking a busload of our middle schoolers and high schoolers down to Bullwinkle's Family Fun Center. Has anyone ever been there? All right. One of the happiest places on earth, okay? You've got bumper boats. You've got laser tag, you've got batting cages, you've got go-karts, you've got putt-putt golf. We're there for like three or four hours just having a blast, right? 
the day as we're leading up to that is my day is making sure we have every parent form signed out and everything else, right? And I'm, I'm looking forward to this time. I love hanging out with teenagers. They're unique, and the energy that they bring to the world is amazing. And as I'm preparing for this amazing time I have, there's an alert on my phone that comes that shares that there's been another school shooting. And, man... Moments like that push me really quickly into disorder where I, I feel like I know how this world should work and I know how we should behave with one another and I, and I teach from stage and I, I try to guide and then there's moments like this where I don't have a lot of answers, that the fences are really far away, I'm not even sure where they are. And I'm confronted with this idea that I somehow am blessed to go take like 40-something teenagers down to hang out with them and enjoy them and there, there are some who didn't get to finish the day, whose parents are hurting and in a place of disorder that I have never tasted or touched in my entire life. And I'm, I'm caring, and, I'm, and so I do what most of us do, which I just kind of set it right there, and I went to Bullwinkles, and we had an amazing time, and I was able to set it aside for like, like five hours, honestly. And then I get home later on, and I'm exhausted, and this is a great night, right? And I'm in bed, and it hits me again, the reality of it. And I'm right there, I'm, I'm, I have this choice. Like what, like, what will I do with this? Over time, and I can't say this was all true, this was always the case for me, over time, my relationship with God and my prayer life has gotten to a place, a nest for me. This was not always the case, even as a pastor. I could quote the Bible really well, but this was not always the case. And for whatever reason, I just learned, I'm a brain chemistry nerd, and I love learning things about the brain, and I just learned this amazing thing, that neuroscientists now, they can, they can measure the thoughts and the things that come into our brain, and they can see which stick with us. And we know now that Feelings and experiences of, of pain, of hurt, of feel, fear, and of anger, they stick to our brains like Velcro, right? You know this is true if you've ever been having a really good day and then one thing happens, right? One thing that shifts your world, and all of a sudden it gets louder than everything else. But I also learned this other truth which I didn't understand at first. It said, when it comes to positive, joyful, redemptive thoughts and feelings and experiences, that's not how our brain works. Our brain, just, it just, those don't just stick to our brain. But if you'll take them and you'll experience them and you will savor them for just 15 seconds, they're more powerful. They stick to us. They stick with us more than anything else in our world. So I sat up in my bed and I closed my eyes. And I don't know why this is the choice, but I started to just toggle through the experiences of the night. And I saw the smiles of the kids and the joy and how silly that dude is. And how much of a joy it has been to watch her go from four to 17 in my life. And the uniqueness of him. And I started to savor it. And I started it to allow it to not just be something that I did, but something that I experienced fully. And, I, and I, I welcomed it. 
and I saw what it did. See, I had no power over what happened in a school shooting. I have no power over that. But I do have power in what I do with my life. And my choice, my response to that moment of disorder was to move to a new place of reorder or even deeper, even greater, cherished and was thankful for the experiences that I had. I cannot say that's true all the time. I can't. But in that moment, my response, I allowed the progression to happen. I felt the feelings and I said, Lord, what do I do in this moment? And he said, love deeper, experience better, feel all the way. Guys, as we close our time today, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. I'm going to give you an encouragement that whatever you're going through in life, that Jesus has made a way out, but the only way out is through. If you want to live the transformative, the resurrected life. Wherever you're at, in your world that's in disorder. It will require time. I pray right now for um, relationships in your world, but if they're there already, that you would put some energy into that to create safe places for you to navigate through some stuff. Or maybe for some of us, for courage and bravery to step forward and say, I don't, gosh, I don't know where that is right now, and so I'm going to I'm going to step out and I'm going to seek out a counselor or a pastor or a friend or I'm going to search that out. I'm going to acknowledge that the disorder I'm going through right now, the, the stuff that doesn't make sense, it, it requires some extra energy and that's okay. And those of us that are sitting in a place of order that we say our, our responsibility is to look back and, is, and to encourage everyone going through. And that is the rhythm we stay in in this life. So for the next 10 minutes or so, we're just going to give you an opportunity to do that, to invite God into the space, the Holy Spirit, to meet you, to acknowledge disorder. Guys, to celebrate order, to celebrate reorder, the places where, wherever the Holy Spirit's leading you, that's where you're supposed to go. But be there all the way, not halfway. Be fully in your presence. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to spend a few minutes um, walking through a visual liturgy, inviting God um, reminding ourselves that we have a choice. Will we be wineskins that stretch and grow and are open to new things? Or are we done growing? The choice is yours. Pray with me. Jesus, we give ourselves to you. That is a scary thing to do. Control. I would like to play, stay in a place of order my whole life. But that's not the path you have for me. So I trust you. We trust you. That everything that's going on in our lives, the order, the disorder, the reorder, is for us. For our transformation to look and act and be like you. unto you, Lord.